Hello, dear listeners, and welcome back to the Nope Too Creepy podcast. This week's episode will feature a single, long, and epic story written by Reddit user A Moon Walked. I present to you Don't Visit Monument Valley Alone. There is something about the deserts of the American Southwest that denies all explanation. The deserts aren't dead things, wastelands waiting to consume the living. They themselves live and thrum. They vibrate with energy and life. They are beautiful and brutal in equal amounts, the one making the other more poignant. Those deserts are also filled with their own secrets. Voices on empty mesas, footprints in dead stone, bones dancing to their own rattles. A person doesn't have to lose their mind out there to think they're going crazy. The desert protects itself. I was 24 back in 1996 when I first ventured out into Monument Valley, accompanied by a res dog named Pinto I'd found in Kianta. I'd started my morning in Flagstaff, Arizona, and made my way upwards towards Tuba City, some light backpacking gear and journals tucked securely in my back seat. I'd lived in Arizona all my life, but never made my way through the Navajo Nation to go see the valley. With a career move looming, I decided I had to go before I left Arizona behind for the foreseeable future. I pulled into Kayanta at about 10.30 a.m. and stocked up on a few food essentials at the Bashas, a grocery store that only seems to exist on reservations. I met Pinto in the cracked parking lot while loading the food into a small cooler. He was kind of a mutt, a smaller lab, and red-brown in color like a Pinto bean, thus the name. He stared longingly at the salami I was hiding away and licked his lips as I pulled it back out. Despite being a stray, He sat politely a few feet away as I withdrew a piece and placed it on the ground in front of him. He waited for a moment for me to pull my hand back and then gingerly took it, his brown eyes on me as he ate. With the first piece done, he came even closer, his boldness multiplied by his hunger. I wondered if it was a mistake to feed him until he touched his nose to my hand and pushed it back towards the cooler. Smart dog. This time I gave him a small piece of yellow cheese, the gross kind that comes wrapped in individual plastic sleeves. This time he didn't wait for me to put it on the ground, gleefully grabbing it from my fingers and devouring it. He stood and stretched into a low play bow, thanking me and then jumping into the back seat next to the cooler before I could stop him. 
The next few minutes were spent trying to coax him out of the car. I tried more salami and cheese, but he seemed to know the game and stayed put, curling up in the legroom of the back seat. Anytime I tried to touch him, he'd shy away or snarl slightly. Eventually, I gave up and relented. It wasn't like he belonged to anyone in Kianta anyway. I wouldn't be the first white boy to take a res dog home. Together, we drove north towards Monument Valley. He started the drive by staying in his little puppy ball. But after the first half hour, he came and sat in the passenger seat. He looked out of the window ahead of us and watched the world slide by, his pink tongue lolling out as he panted the heat away. Now that I wasn't trying to remove him from the car, he was happy to have my hand scratch at his dusty fur. We drove that way for a while, one hand scratching behind his ear, one hand on the wheel, keeping him sentinel. I pulled the backcountry camping permit I had gotten earlier and placed it on my dashboard. Monument Valley is sacred to the Navajo, and I wanted to be sure I showed at least a bit of respect for them. We drove as far as the dirt road would take us, parked, and sat a while as I journaled and drew. The towering giants of red-orange stone stood stark against the gigantic blue sky. I wrote that the monuments looked like gravestones, something I'm sure no one had ever thought before. Sometimes the brain wasn't as creative as I wanted it to be. At first, Pinto refused to leave the car, content with his wheel well. I left the back door open for him and went to the front passenger seat to write. Soon, however, he laid down next to the car in the shade and slept while I worked. I poured some water into a small Tupperware for him and left it next to him. He'd sometimes wake to take lazy slurps before stretching back out and relaxing. The Arizona sun beat down, but the temperature was only in the mid-70s, a perk of traveling in October. After I was done writing and working, I began to head out on the trail with a light pack, planning to sleep in the car for the first night. Pinto watched me leave, not yet interested in joining the exploration. I was a bit bummed that he had come this far and then decided to let me go, but I had just met him. As I walked down the trail, I stared out across the world. Bright white clouds hung suspended in blue, seeming to hardly move at all. Hard dust and stone crunched and slid below my feet as I walked. The world was quiet around me, and visibility was good in all directions. Lizards lazed about on rocks, sunning themselves until I passed close to them, their small sounds of escape echoing mine as they skittered away. I spent much of my youth in the deserts down south near Phoenix, but this was a new kind of solitude. After just a few short hours, I began to hear my own footsteps as if they were echoes. Sometimes I'd hear the shifting of dirt, but couldn't see what caused it.
As the sun reached a midway point on the horizon, I decided to stop and sit for a while before turning back to the car. I had been approaching one of the largest spires for the last few hours, but the size was deceptive. I knew there was a designated campsite somewhere closer to the monument, but I wouldn't get there until tomorrow. I pulled out a hunk of bread from the smaller pack I'd brought with me that day and dug in. I thought of all the stories I'd heard about the desert, all of the ghost stories that desert dwellers knew, the stories even rational people would tell. As a child, I had let my imagination get the best of me time and again. I would see and hear the things I was afraid of, but I'd mostly grown out of that. However, being out here alone was eerily disconcerting. I'd grown my false footsteps into footsteps of their own. Several times while relaxing out on the trail, I thought I heard those footsteps again. And I'd look around, but there was obviously nothing there. Just my imagination. When I began to head back to the car, the echoed footsteps seemed to begin again, closer. I walked more quickly, but tried to calm myself to avoid letting my imagination grow wild. A small mistake in the desert, even on a trail and with gear, could be deadly. As the world turned to dark, I crested the last rise and found myself standing again in the parking lot, Pinto wagging his tail as he saw me. And then his hackles raised as he looked at me and began to growl. I stopped in my tracks, unsure what was going on, until suddenly, the scent of rotting flesh hit my nose. It was as if I had stepped into a slaughterhouse. Then I noticed the sound of my footsteps. Not my footsteps. The footsteps behind my footsteps. Inside my footsteps. I turned and finally caught a glimpse of something incredibly tall and spindly stalking up behind me, its caution lost now that it had been spotted. The flashes of skin touched by moonlight were bone white, while the rest of it was covered in matted fur and blood. I bolted for the car and noticed the back driver's side door was open. I'd forgot to close it after Pinto had first refused to get out. As I ran, Pinto ran past me, screaming his growling bark into the night. I heard the thing that had been following my steps cry and then crash away into the night, the small dog barking after it. I got into my car and confirmed my initial fear. The dome light above me was off. The car was dead. Futilely, I tried to get the engine to turn over. It refused. I couldn't go back into the night with that thing out there. So I sat with the doors closed and locked, 
a sleeping bag wrapped around me, trying to preserve my heat as the temperatures outside plummeted. I worried about Pinto for a while before my exhaustion caught up with me. I fell into an uneasy sleep as the moon shed just enough light to see into the distance of the valley. Despite starting the night in fear, I awoke the next morning well rested, if a bit stiff and cold. The car seat I'd slept in had become less and less comfortable over the hours, but the idea of moving around to a different position terrified me. Whatever had chased me to the car, and been subsequently chased away by Pinto, hadn't come back, but I didn't want to risk losing my line of sight if I heard something. I sat in the uncomfortable seat until the sun began to warm Monument Valley, its rays creeping down the interior of the car, illuminating me. The area around the car was deserted. The creature was nowhere to be seen, and unfortunately, neither was Pinto. I wondered if he had made it out alive, chasing something like that away. It didn't really make sense that the creature was okay trying to hunt me, but was afraid of this little dog, but it had worked out in my favor. Without much hope, I tried the car again. There was a click as I turned the key, but the electronics did not spring to life. My next step was going to be foot travel down the road to the true tourist area and hope that someone could help me. It also meant leaving my makeshift castle and hoping the creature didn't like the daytime too much. The only other means of protection I had was a river knife that I'd been able to take from my life jacket and clip to my backpack. It would have to do. After 30 more minutes had passed, the sun was high enough to begin the trek down the dusty road. I offloaded as much as I could from my pack, hoping I would be light enough to make a run for it if I had to. With a final look from the safety of the vehicle, I pushed the door open. The first thing I noticed was the smell. Rotting meat. The same I had smelled the night before when I'd first seen the monster. It wasn't as strong as it had been, though. The dirt around the car was disturbed like something had walked around it in the night. But I hadn't heard anything. I took a quick look towards where Pinto had chased the creature and saw a flap of flesh sitting on a rock. It had a tuft of black fur on it, nothing like Pinto's fur. As I approached, I realized it was the source of the smell that had filled the area becoming increasingly pungent with each step. I was just glad it wasn't Pinto. I hoped he had gotten at least a few more chunks out of that thing. I whistled once, sharply, 
and hoped the friendly dog I'd found would come lopping out. But the world around me remained quiet. So I turned to the road and began walking, each step producing a puff of dust as my shoes lifted the dirt free from the ground. I felt like an idiot for how far I'd gone. My very best hope was that someone else would come driving along at some point and be able to pick me up, but that was unlikely. So I trudged and made sure to take thoughtful sips of water as I did so. It wasn't going to get unbearably hot, but the sun was still dangerous, and I wasn't going to be able to stop for shade. I stopped early on when I caught movement to my right, deep in the valley. I waited nervously to figure out what was there before the shape of a large deer clarified. My heartbeat slowed as it moved across the landscape, headed in the same direction as me. I didn't even know deer could live out here. The curious side of me wanted to see exactly what kind of deer it was, but the survival was far more important. I'd have to just ask a guide about it, if I ever got out of the desert. About four miles in, as I crested a small rise, I saw a glint on the road ahead, something metallic reflecting the sun. A swell of hope filled my heart as I approached and realized it was another car, still a few miles away. With a chance at salvation so close, I picked up my pace, which was probably a mistake. I thought I was home free, and I started to ignore the world around me. That's why I didn't notice when the deer disappeared. When I finally looked again to the right, towards my distant traveling partner, it was gone. Carefully, I scanned the horizon, but saw no evidence that it was still there. The valley suddenly felt far more lonely. I realized as I walked that the car was further than it had originally seemed. As I slowed down to take a sip of water and relax my pace, I caught movement from the corner of my eye. From out of nowhere, the deer had returned. It stopped as I looked over towards it, seemingly aware of my stare. It was closer than it had been, but the gap between us was still huge. Something sweet blew in from the wind. I could make it out of this. The long walk continued. I finally closed the distance to within a mile of the car. The sun wasn't quite overhead yet, but it was awfully close. With a quick tug, I pulled my wide-brim hat lower over my head, trying to keep the light off of my face. The deer had been walking beside me the whole time, which I appreciated. But I was feeling cautious. Every time I looked straight ahead, my peripheral vision made it seem like the deer moved in a jittery 
stilted fashion. But any time I turned to check, the deer would stop in its tracks. I also had the impression it was getting closer, but that seemed crazy. I would have seen it happen. Whenever the wind blew from the direction of the deer, a hauntingly familiar sweet smell would cross me. About 200 yards from the car, my hope soured. Two doors of the car were open, and the vehicle wasn't parked so much as it was abandoned. The eerie sense of being followed returned. Something was wrong. I picked up the pace again, ignoring the deer beside me. I didn't really care if my movement scared him. I needed to get to that car quickly. When I finally made it, there was no one else there. The car was completely empty, with no keys to be seen. The car was filled with a familiar smell, but I was having a hard time placing it. The interior lights were still on as I leaned in the passenger side and put my hands onto the black fabric of the seat where they made a strange squelching sound. I leaned back out and looked down at my palms, colored a deep crimson. After a moment of panic, I looked more around the side of the car. The only places where the blood seemed to be were in the fabric of the seat and a few small drops on the metal doorframe. It made no sense. I looked closely at the window and found an answer. Smears across the glass. They looked exactly the same as the windows in my dad's car after he'd take our big dumb lab on rides. He'd spend the whole time licking them. Revolted, I leaned away and caught the sweet scent again. The deer was staring at me now, only about 500 yards away. Its weirdly pale head was tilted slightly sideways as it kept an eye on me. As I dragged my eyes away from it, I saw the shoe. It was off the side of the road in a small ditch below scrub brush. With no lack of caution, I made my way towards it. I could see some other blue fabric above the shoe. Maybe jeans. The smell of shit and blood grew as I approached. What I found was more horrifying than I'd expected. I kicked the shoe once and felt that it was solidly attached to something. When it didn't move, I reached down and pulled, fearing the worst. As the man's body slid out from the other brush, I nearly vomited. One leg was missing entirely, and the stomach of whoever this had been was torn open. 
I don't know much about anatomy, but I could tell the organs had been destroyed and some were missing. I looked up to where his face should be and finally lost the meager water in my stomach. The mouth was open, locked in a rictus of pain, like all of this had happened while he was still awake, but the flesh was missing. After a moment of gathering myself, I reached towards the pants of the body and felt around the pockets. I began to whistle, trying to clear my head. This was the most disgusting thing I had ever done. The pocket on the intact leg was no dice, so I reached toward the mangled side. For the first time in two days, I had a bit of good luck as my fingers crossed around the ring there. I pulled the keys free and stopped whistling. And that's when I noticed it. The sweet smell had been getting more consistent, and I'd been ignoring it as I focused on the body. But now I knew what it was. The sweetness of spoiled meat. I jumped to my feet and looked around. The deer was less than 50 yards from me. I stared at it curling the keys tightly into my fist, wondering if I could beat the creature to the car. It took a jittery step forward, its legs bending unnaturally. Now that I had a closer look, it seemed like the skin of the deer was too loose, and there was something wrong with its head. It took another shuddering step, and I figured it out. The pale coloring on the front of its head had three dark spots in it, two small and one large. Holes, like a face screaming in pain. My eyes darted towards the body next to me as I stepped backwards to the vehicle. The thing wheezed and shook. I could hear a strange clicking as it moved. Blood from the face had stained the deer fur into a disgusting crimson brown. Each of us moved at the same time. I turned and began to scramble towards the car, and it leapt ahead unnaturally fast. Right as I made it to the car, something hit my back and it erupted into fire. The smell of rot was all around me, causing me to panic. It was like it had infected my senses. I pushed myself across the passenger seat and kicked backwards without looking. My foot connected with something disgustingly soft making a sucking sound as I pulled it free. The creature reeled for a moment, which gave me enough time to situate myself in the driver's seat before jamming the keys into the ignition and turning it over. The car hummed to a start 
and I floored it as the creature began to climb in. Now that it was no longer pretending to be a deer, it had stretched to its full height and its legs were dragging behind the vehicle. It screamed in pain or fury and finally let go, tumbling across the dirt. I kept the pedal down. I only had about eight miles left before I'd hit the real road. But as the adrenaline I was feeling died down, my pain started to grow. My back felt like it had been torn apart. I reached my hand behind me and felt one of the gouges. It was pouring blood into the seat. As my fingers brushed the wound, the pain in my back flared and my vision went black. When I came to, something was licking my face. I turned my head and looked into the eyes of Pinto, his head framed by the stars. The world around us, smelling like death. I moved my arm towards Pinto, and my back erupted into a spasm of pain. I could hear the dried blood crackle as I sat up. My body screamed in pain as I looked around for the car I'd passed out in. The front of it was crumpled against the side of a ditch running along the road, and the driver's side door was open. I must have tried to crawl out at some point of consciousness during the blackout, but I'd only made it about 20 feet or so. Pinto whined as he watched me, and I suddenly remembered what I'd been running from. The smell of rotting flesh brought me back to my senses, and I looked around for the creature who'd torn my back open. I heard him before I saw him. A clicking to my right. A gibberish. I tried to turn my head in the direction of the noise, but pain shot through my neck and I had to turn my whole body instead. The slack face of the dead man I saw earlier stared back at me. Its anguish multiplied by the light from the moon and stars filtering down on it. The rest of the creature's body shuddered, an almost erotic display of anticipation but it did not close the distance. I thought it was watching me, but Pinto circled. The creature's head tilted and followed him. Any time Pinto moved closer to the creature, it would back off. Pinto had his own eyes locked on the strange face and alternated between whines and snarls waiting for something to happen. The creature moaned in return, the sound coming from deep within its chest. It clicked and hummed to itself as it waited. Each time I tried to move, it became more alert. But my body was not ready. No matter how much my mind screamed for me to leave, the pain was too much to bear. We three sat like that for an hour 
in our stalemate before I noticed it. A small creosote bush that had been roughly a foot in front of the creature when I first saw it was now next to its grotesque hand. It was as if each time Pinto had circled and had pulled away, it had then pushed back a little closer. It wanted me, and it became clear it would not stay away forever. I gritted my teeth and rolled to my stomach, placing my palms in the dirt. I didn't take my eyes off of the face that now looked on with something close to curiosity. Then I pushed to my knees. The thing's breathing sped up, and Pinto began to pant. I felt his nose pressing to my side. When I had my balance, I reached down and scratched his ear. Good boy. Brave boy. Very brave. I felt tears began to fall as I realized how thankful I was not to be alone. As I spoke, the monster tilted its head and began reaching towards me. It stopped its non-word gibbering. Sounds escaped from it like they were pushed by a pump through bone-dry vocal cords. Good boy, good brave, brave, good very boy. It watched. It waited for me to react, and then it repeated itself, varying the pitch. Good boy, good brave, brave, good very boy. I wanted to throw up, the smell of rotten meat increasing as it mimicked me and reached out. With a renewed sense of fear and necessity, I pushed all the way to my feet and slowly turned down the road towards the small rise ahead of me, using every bit of my will to look away from the creature behind me, still repeating its nonsense phrase to itself. I wasn't sure how far I'd make it in the car, but I'd at least know if I had a chance, if I could just see anything from the top of the hill. I began to walk. Each step was agony as my entire body rebelled against what it was being called to do. Injuries and exhaustion had broken me, but I kept moving, slowly. Pinto beside me and the monster behind. Unlike when it had been stalking me and matching its footsteps to my own, now it was merely waiting for me to fall and for my body to give out. It spoke to itself behind me, clicking, shaking, moaning, repeating what I'd said to Pinto. Sometimes it whistled. Always it breathed, a breathy, wheezy thing filled with hunger and anticipation. One hundred yards later, Pinto and I began to crest the rise and were able to see down. The lights of the welcome center and information area glowed below us, fewer than 500 yards away. For the first time since I awoke, I felt like I had a chance. I kept moving as Pinto began to whine. 
whatever this creature was. It knew the lights meant its next meal, or victim, or whatever I was, could escape. It began to test how close it could get to the dog and me. I couldn't look, but I could hear it shambling, keeping pace, its breathing getting louder as it closed in. I imagined I could feel its hot, putrid breath on me. Pinto would periodically turn around and growl, buying us a bit of space, but that space lasted less and less time with each warning. It continued to speak to itself, now focusing on just one word. Boy, 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 boy. I wanted to scream, wanted to turn, I needed to run, but I couldn't. With 200 yards left to go, I wondered how long it would be before Pinto's bravery broke and he made for the lights on his own, leaving me to die within sight of salvation. I wouldn't have blamed him. He was a res dog, and I was just a guy who'd given him cheap deli slices and a car ride. Was that worth dying for? But he stayed. And we walked, and with less than a football field's distance to go, I stumbled, my weight carried forward, and I fell. And all of the parts of me I'd forced to work, all the parts I'd forced to continue despite injury and exhaustion, gave out. I tried to get my hands under me, but couldn't. They wouldn't lift. I began to cry. The fine dust of the road caked onto my lips and in my nose. The breathing behind me grew even more excited. Now it just had to wait out or scare off the dog. Pinto began to cry, nuzzling at my face, licking the dust from my cheeks. I tried to make a noise like a kissing sound so he'd stay close to me but the dust on my lips made it hard. I started to sound just like the beast behind me. Good boy. You're very good. You're very good. You're so brave. I heard a clattering footstep as the stinking thing stepped closer, its desire starting to overrule its fear. Pinto's nose darted from me as he began to bark, low shocks of air accompanied by a rolling growl. I could see his body low next to me, his tail raised as he barked. Good boy, I thought. I closed my eyes, not wanting to see my death approach. My head hurt, my body hurt. I had failed to survive. Just then, the sound of a whistle tore through my brain, followed by a horrifying scream of pain. Was that me screaming? Before I could figure it out, I departed into darkness, and there was nothing for a while. 
when I opened my eyes again. It was to a fluorescent light overhead and a beeping beside me. My body ached, but I was alive. After a moment of grogginess, I panicked and began looking for Pinto, terrified he was gone and I was unprotected. I lifted my head and saw two chairs in the corner, one holding up a curled dog with his tail over his nose, the other holding a sleeping man in a Navajo tribal police uniform. His head was on his chest and his dark black hair was shiny in the lights. As if he could sense me stirring, Pinto woke up before I could say anything. He jumped from the chair and began circling the bed, whining and wagging his tail. He had a clean white bandage on his side. His whining awoke the man in the chair. He immediately stood up and went to the side of the bed. I blinked my eyes and looked at the badge on his chest. T. Yazi. He knelt down and looked straight at me. You're pretty lucky, kid. I heard your dog barking while I was working a security shift at the information center and decided to check on it. He looked towards the closed door and then back at me. I thought I was going to find some stray out there going after some sort of animal, but I did not expect you. What happened to me? What... What was that? I croaked out the words as best as I could. Officially, you were in a car accident and attacked by coyotes. That was what we decided was best, especially with the other bodies out there. That was the best choice we had for our higher-ups. Nobody likes tourists dying on the reservation especially in bad ways like that. We finished with that mess a couple days ago. He leaned in and placed something on my chest. What it really was isn't something I can tell you. But some things are coyotes, and some things walk in the skins of coyotes. And you have to know which is which. But it has your scent now and you need to go as soon as you can. We found your car and towed it here. As soon as you can walk, you need to walk down to the parking lot, get behind the wheel, and never come back. And if you see something, or someone, wearing the skin of something else, you need to blow this flute. He lifted the item on my chest, a strange white cylinder with holes carved in its length. Blow into it as loudly and as sharply as you can, and then run. He rose from the side of the bed. Good dog you have there. Take care of him. Then he turned and left the room. A nurse entered a few moments later and began the process of tending to a now conscious patient. She told me the officers had directed for my paperwork and information to be sent to Flagstaff, and I would resume treatment there. She showed me photos of my back, 
a patchwork of blood and stitches. Told me Pinto was allowed to stay only because Officer Yazzie was her cousin and he trusted her. I slept one more night in the hospital and was discharged the next morning. A bottle of antibiotics in hand. A fresh collar and new leash around Pinto's neck. Together we walked towards the car and he hopped in the passenger seat. Eyes out the window, ready to go. I lowered myself gently into the driver's seat and settled in for the trip. I turned the key and the engine roared to life. I reached out and scratched Pinto's ear. He lolled his tongue out of his mouth, panting lightly. As we rode out of the parking lot, Pinto let out a low growl. I followed his gaze out the window and made eye contact with a familiar-looking man, begging on the sidewalk out front. He was dressed in a heavy brown, fur-like coat, definitely too hot for October, and holding a cardboard sign. As I passed, he stared at the car and smiled. I recoiled at the familiarity. The last time I'd seen that face, it had been hanging loosely from the head of a monster intent on killing me, whispering to itself, boy, 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 boy. I pushed the pedal to the floor and didn't stop until the reservation was behind me. The entire way, I clutched the flute to my chest and hoped I'd never hear Pinto growl into the darkness again. Thank you for joining me in this episode of the Nope Too Creepy Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the story because I sure as hell had a great time reading it. If you're interested in learning more about the author, links to connect with them can be found in the show notes. If you did enjoy yourself, please be sure to give us a follow. And if you're feeling really generous, maybe a rating? Hmm? Maybe? Until next time, this is your host, Dan David, reminding everyone to stay safe out there. I'll be seeing you in the next episode.